This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The movie and TV industries are in chaos. Striking actors and writers have shut down production. Broadcast TV lost viewers to cable, then cable lost viewers to streaming TV. Now broadcast cable and many streaming platforms are in trouble. The movie industry is in trouble too. People spend more time and money on video games than on movies, and more time watching YouTube than any other TV network. Big media companies are merging with or buying other big media companies. Some of the companies that were bought may soon be sold. Just about every company in Hollywood has been cutting costs and laying off employees. Is the industry collapsing or just reshaping? And what does this mean for viewers and for the future of entertainment? My guest, Lucas Shaw, is the managing editor for media and entertainment at Bloomberg and the author of the weekly newsletter, Screen Time. He spent more than a decade writing about how the world's largest technology companies have reshaped pop culture. Before we start the interview, I want to disclose that most of Fresh Air's staff are members of SAG-AFTRA, but they're covered by a different contract than the actors. I'm a member of the actors part of SAG because I've had several small parts on screen, mostly portraying myself. Lucas Shaw, welcome to Fresh Air. I think one way to show how movies and TV are changing is to look at who owns what, which mega companies are the biggest players, and what do they own. So can we do some, like, uh, media genealogy? So why don't we start with um, Warner Brothers Discovery? So Warner Brothers Discovery is the combination of three companies that used to be independent. There was Discovery Communications, uh, which is best known for a bunch of cable networks, including its namesake, uh, you know, generally lowbrow reality TV. There was Scripps Networks, uh, which was another kind of bundle of cable networks uh, that included HGTV, the Food Network. And then there's Time Warner, which is sort of the, the big one of them all, which is home to the Warner Brothers Film and Television Studio, cable networks like TNT and TBS, as well as HBO. And Time Warner has been through a lot of mergers over the years. You know, it was famously combined with AOL, then separated, uh, and then was acquired by uh, AT&T, the phone company, turned into a division called Warner Media, then spun out of that and merged with Discovery into Warner Brothers Discovery. My head is spinning. <laughs> <laughs> I think the employees at those companies feel the same way. Let me just say here, we think of all these um, you know, channels and companies that you mentioned as being these independent uh, uh, companies with their own identities. And now all the ones you just mentioned are merged into this one giant company. So do brands stop meaning anything? Well, we're in the middle of a great reshuffling of what brands mean, right? So for the past several decades, people watch TV by watching broadcast networks and cable networks, and those were brands that rose and mattered quite a bit. You know, in, in my childhood, that was Nickelodeon and MTV 
and ESPN and all these cable networks that became among the most sort of beloved brands for young people and people of all ages. And streaming and the, the, the rise of internet media has changed all that because the cable networks have started to decline. And so a lot of them are being sold off, being combined, being rebranded. So let's continue our genealogy and move to Disney. So Disney, in the last 20 years or so, bought Pixar, the, the animation studio. It bought Marvel, the, uh, the, the comic book factory. It bought Lucasfilm, uh, which is the company that, that made and owned all the Star Wars movies. And then a few years ago, it bought many entertainment assets from Rupert Murdoch from his, his Fox company, which included some major television studios, TV networks like FX, um, as, well as, the, as well as the movie studio. And Paramount Global, what do they own? Paramount Global uh, owns everything from the CBS Broadcast Network to cable networks, MTV, Comedy Central, uh, VH1. It's in the process of, of trying to sell BET, which it owns. And it's the combination of two companies, CBS and Viacom, which have been sort of put together and split apart over the years, but are currently all one uh, under the Redstone family, this time Sherry Redstone, who's the daughter of legendary media mogul Sumner Redstone. So why is this happening now? Is this happening to please shareholders? Is this happening um, because companies just want the edge in the competition and they want as little competition as possible? What's this about? It largely stems from the the slow collapse of cable television. Uh, so most of the biggest media and entertainment companies of sort of the prior generation, many of them today, make a lot of their money, if not most of their money, from cable networks. So Paramount, which we talked about, makes most of its money from a bunch of cable networks. Disney doesn't make the majority, but it makes a lot of its money from cable networks. But the number of people who pay for cable or pay for satellite or other forms of television have been in decline for several years now. And the pace of that decline has picked up. Now, these cable networks make money from a couple of in a couple of ways. They make money from the fees that they get from distributors like Comcast and Charter. And then they make money from advertising. The advertising market, after many, many years of increasing, has basically stopped growing. It's declined for some. Uh, but all the growth in advertising is in online media. The money that they get from distributors is very affected because if you went from having 95 million people paying for your channel to now 80 or 75, that just even if you get increases in the rate, you're just not going to make as much money from that. And so all these media companies saw sort of the writing on the wall for the business of cable TV. They're trying to manage that decline because they still generate a lot of profit from it. Um, but they have responded by both creating their own streaming services, which they see as the, the future, mostly because of the success that, that Netflix has had, or then merging because they see opportunities to cut costs by combining people. They get more power in the marketplace. If you are negotiating with a Comcast and you own 20 cable networks instead of 10 cable networks, Comcast has a harder time pushing you around. If one company owns all these different channels, and some of them in niche channels, like Turner Classic Movies or HBO, how much does the parent company really care about the identity of individual channels? Because it, it all just becomes about making profit and um, you know uh, beating out the competition. 
So um, some things that are really valuable can't just be measured in profit and in measuring yourself against the the metrics of other companies. Uh, so I, am I am I wrong to be worried about um, individual identities being uh, slowly eradicated? I think it depends on which individual identities matter to you. So you're you're correct that a lot of these networks, brands that have been built up over the years that people may have some attachment to are going away or at least being starved, right? You know, a lot of these media companies have shifted resources from cable networks to streaming or are focusing resources on a few networks. So in the case of Warner Brothers Discovery, there was a moment in time where they were making original programming for TNT and TBS and some of those networks. They're not really doing that anymore. Or you, you, we've talked about Turner Classic Movies. That's a brand that they feel they've invested too much money in and so they are cutting back uh, the investment in a significant way. You know, Disney has spoken recently, but Bob Iger, the CEO, gave an interview in which he called his TV assets non-core, which was his way of saying they're for sale. And that means that uh, a network that's been around for, for decades, like ABC, is is potentially in play. Um, and so if you if that really matters to you, certainly for the employees at those companies, for some of the viewers, um, that's frightening. The, the counter-argument to that is that new brands have been created. And so maybe if you really like Hulu or if you really like Disney Plus, uh, that's sort of the the replacement for what ABC has been for many decades. You write that Netflix and YouTube will soon account for as much TV viewing as all the broadcast networks combined. That's an amazing thing to think about. And the the truth is, is that may already be happening, but the measure for that is this is this Nielsen a measurement called the gauge, which just measures viewership on television for the most part. So think about how much viewership of YouTube happens on a mobile device. And the the total amount of time viewing those two could could already have exceeded. But Netflix and, and YouTube have really been the two companies over the last 10 plus years that certainly I've spent a bulk of my time writing about and that have completely revolutionized the the entertainment and media business from two ends. You know, Netflix at the premium, high end, very much like HBO, but breaking a lot of the rules of how the entertainment business has worked. And then YouTube at the lower end, creating this new generation of user-generated content um, that a lot of people like. And while we can dismiss it as low quality, um, you know, a lot of viewers feel otherwise. And YouTube, of course, is owned by Google. So <laughs> we get, we're back in the world of mega companies. Think about how big YouTube is, you know, billions of users, the most watched video service really in the world, the most, watched, the most used music service in the world. And it was small enough in the broader Google or Alphabet, as the parent company is known, empire, that they didn't even break out the, the revenue that they got from YouTube until a couple of years ago. You know what company we didn't mention, I don't think, is Amazon and what they own now. Amazon, uh, like Netflix and and like Apple, um, built its studio really from from the ground up. They started more than a decade ago. You know, they, they, they have a video streaming service. They also have a store that sells other services that allows you to rent movies. So it's sort of a hybrid original streaming service like a Netflix, but with that retail component that we all associate Amazon with. And for the original service for Prime Video, 
Uh, they fund a lot of original television shows and movies. You know, some of their early hits were, were like Transparent, uh, Mozart in the Jungle. They One of their biggest hits now is a show called uh, Jack Ryan, and they have The Boys. And then they recently bought MGM, you know, iconic Hollywood studio but it, that, that operates in both film and television, uh, for about $8.5 billion. And that is is primarily to serve up uh, you know, intellectual property for exploitation across film and television. And it also will help Amazon release movies in theaters, which is something that they want to do that, that Netflix thus far doesn't really want to do. So let's get back to Disney. Um, and to sum up, they own Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, ABC, FX, and ESPN. Um, and Bob Iger, the CEO made it clear last week that he's thinking of selling their TV holdings. And as you said, he said they may not be core to Disney. So he's selling which assets and and why? You mentioned ABC. He didn't specify what specifically he would sell. Uh, on ESPN, which has been the subject of intense speculation over many years, because ESPN was really the, the crown jewel of the cable bundle. It gets paid the most, or Disney gets paid the most by cable companies for it. Uh, you know, several dollars a month from everyone who has cable. Uh, but ESPN has been challenged as a result more than most by the decline. And Iger said that he would be open to a partnership. It's important to note that Hearst already owns a chunk of ESPN. So Disney owns the majority and controls it, but it doesn't own 100%. So were it to sell to a partner but still want to control it, where it's playing with about 30% of the company. Uh, there's been a lot of speculation as to, to who would or wouldn't be interested in owning ESPN or owning part of it. Is that something that tech companies like Apple and Amazon that are investing in sports would want a piece of? Is that something that gambling companies like DraftKings or FanDuel would want? Is it private equity? A little bit unclear. David Zaslav, who is the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, um, which owns a whole lot of stuff, as we described, he's seen by some people who cover the industry as being representative of the changes that the industry is going through now in, in, in television and film. So can you talk a little bit about his role in all of this? Like, well, what is he doing that is making him emblematic of these changes? Well, David Zaslav was for a long time sort of a member of the mogul class, but with a relatively small empire, if you will. You know, Discovery Communications, you know, he he got he got paid like he was a Bob Iger, you know, often getting 40, 50, 60 million dollars a year. He went to all the right conferences, he had all the right friends, but his but his empire was small. And then he pulls off this pretty remarkable deal where he convinces AT&T to sell him Warner Media and he swallows the whole thing. Uh, the the problem he has is that in doing that transaction, the the resulting company has just a ton of debt, north of $50 billion. That's not all due right away. Most of it's not. But over the long term, he's got to find a way to, to pay that down. Wait, can I say, and you said $50 billion, right, with a B? That is correct. That's $50 a lot billion of debt. with a B. Okay. It is a lot. Yeah. And he's got still mostly all these cable networks that are at best stable, at worst declining. And he's got a streaming service, or two really. He had Discovery Plus, which was his, and HBO Max, which were doing okay, but hadn't got to the scale of a Netflix or a Disney Plus or an Amazon uh, or, or even a Hulu, at least, in terms of how much time people spent watching it. And so he has spent a lot of the last year and a half just 
cutting costs. And that has been firing workers. Um, that has been shelving projects. You know, he was the, in, in many ways, the pioneer of this new strategy where people would, would take shows off streaming services. Um, you know, we had gotten accustomed to the idea that shows would get released and live on the services forever. He yanked some of them down because you could save money that way. There were projects that they'd made, like this movie Batgirl, that they did not release. And a lot of the creative community in Hollywood began to see Zaslav as a totem for everything that they thought was wrong with the business, that it had gotten too concentrated, that everything was about the bottom line, that nobody cared about the artist. Now, the truth is, is that I think the, the business has, has functioned that way for a long time. But there's no question that there's been just sort of this, this existential dread and constant turmoil in the industry for many years. And he is a symbol of all of that. And he, along with, with Bob Iger from Disney, have become, you know, a couple of the quasi-villains in the labor dispute uh, because they get paid so much money, they've cut all the staff, and it just doesn't seem like they're, they're fully in touch with the, the regular worker in their business and they don't value the regular worker in their business. How big is Zaslav's salary? It varies by the year, but suffice it to say that he's he's earned more than a billion dollars in salary over the course of his career. I believe, you know, there there was one year recently where it was it was at least a couple hundred million dollars. A lot of that was due to stock and the transaction that he executed. You know, these these executives are very sensitive to criticism of this and will be quick to point out that oh well, some of it's based on stock and our stock is down, so I'm not actually going to get paid that much money, but. David Zaslav has earned, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year for at least a couple decades uh, and has many, many homes. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to worry about him or many generations of his family. Yeah, so he is incredibly wealthy, gets a huge salary, including stock options. Yet he's like making thousands of people jobless. Um, and the company... The parent company is now, you said, $50 billion in debt. Is he being applauded for that by uh, shareholders? Uh, no. Uh, the, the response to the company or last year in 2022, the, the shares in the company dropped dramatically. You know, the, the value uh, was, was, was pretty much eviscerated because there was such a negative response to where the company was headed. Now, it has, it has bounced back to some extent this year, but it is still off, uh, you know, by a considerable margin from, from when it went public. So, and that's tied into this, this larger skepticism about the future of these media companies uh, because he's sitting on a, a bunch of networks that, that are not making more money. The advertising market is very shaky and the confidence in their streaming service is not high. You know, these companies went from many years of bragging about how much money that they were spending on new programming to build out these services to now bragging about how much money that they're cutting. And so I, I guess you could say that he has now cut enough that there's a, a little bit of confidence, but it's very hard to find a, a media company in which Wall Street has a lot of faith right now with the exception of, of Netflix. But CEOs like Zaslav aren't being punished with salary cutbacks or, <laughs> you know, you, we're $50 billion in debt, so we're going to cut like $10 million from your salary or something like that. Well, while so many people are being laid off at the companies owned by the parent company. There are many people in Hollywood who have called for these executives to, if not cut their salary, forego their entire salary, um, 
and contribute that to some of these people who have been fired or laid off, or it's certainly been a, a major talking point in both the writer strike and the actor strike, where those those workers have held up these salaries as a sign of how out of touch the executives are. Um, you know, the the executives would would say that the you know the the board approves it and the shareholders approve it, although in some cases the shareholders don't. Um, and that there's no relation between their salary and some of these other moves. Well, let me reintroduce you again. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lucas Shaw, and he covers the media for Bloomberg. We'll talk more about how the film and TV industry is changing and how that's affecting writers and actors who are striking now after we take a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with Lucas Shaw, who covers the media industry for Bloomberg. And we're talking about the changing landscape, the dramatically changing landscape in the movie and TV industry and how that's the backdrop for the current writers and actors strike in Hollywood. Lucas, streaming was a great business when Netflix had the market kind of to itself. Now every channel and network seems to have a streaming app. How has that changed the playing field with so much competition? Well, Netflix and all these other streaming services debuted in an environment where shareholders were encouraging them to spend money for growth. Interest rates were low, borrowing money was cheap. Um, and so you saw across the media business, also across the technology business, this notion of delaying profits, not needing to show profitability now because you were trying to sort of build out your service. And that really played to, to Netflix's favor for many years, and a lot of these other companies tried to replicate that. Um, the issue became one, when they all went to to copy Netflix, there was a lot of competition for attention. They were all spending more money than ever. You know, there was just an unprecedented increase in output. We went, I think, from about you know two hundred scripted TV shows being released in in two thousand nine to to almost six hundred last year. So to effectively tripling it. Um, and there's only a finite amount of attention, finite amount of advertising dollars, finite amount of money that people can spend on that. Um, and so you had a lot of companies realize that they, that they were not able to compete. And this happened around the same time or, or kind of in the same t time zone as inflation and the macroeconomic picture turning a little bit. 
And that led investors to want these companies to show profitability. Uh, and so now they're all stuck in this really tricky position um, where they are far less profitable than they used to be at a time where that's what Wall Street's focused on. So their share prices are down. And there's no easy fix because streaming was supposed to be the solution, the savior. And it's not clear to anyone how that's going to work. One of the ways that Netflix is managing to still make a profit in spite of all the instability and change in the industry is that they're really a global company. And a lot of their profit comes from other countries. They're even making productions in other countries, in other languages, designed to be seen in those countries. Yeah, about two-thirds of Netflix's customers live outside of the U.S. and Canada. Um, you know, they, they, a ton of customers across Europe, particularly Western Europe. They have a lot of customers in markets like Brazil and Mexico. Uh, they have a lot of customers in Australia and really growing customer bases in places like Japan and South Korea. And, and one of Netflix's, you know, I think, maybe not innovations, but one of the things that I've appreciated the most about it for, for its many other flaws is that it has connected the world uh, from a programming perspective. And so it has invested a lot of money in South Korea and in popularizing Korean dramas, not just across Asia, but but around the world. They've, they've, they now produce original programming, I think, in at least a couple of dozen countries. Um, and they've had titles, whether it's La Casa de Papel, known in the U.S. as Money Heist, or Lupin from France, or probably most famously Squid Game from South Korea, that have become something that that everyone has watched. Now, the majority of people still watch programming in their own language. Um, but but Netflix has really taken advantage of and built up creative classes in these other countries. And it is to its advantage uh, also from a financial perspective because the cost of making shows in a country like South Korea is considerably lower than it is in the U.S. Do you think subscription prices to Netflix will be changing again soon, that it will be raised even more? It, it has to be. I mean, they're, they're, I don't think it's, I don't think it's imminent. Um, you know, they're they're in the process of, of getting rid of one of their cheapest tiers, which is uh, kind of what's called the, the basic tier. But there's a lot of sensitivity around raising prices right now because of the competition uh, and, and just because of, of inflation where there's there's concern that many people might choose to sign off. And if you think about it, you know, charging for password sharing is is a way of, of raising prices. It's just raising prices on people who weren't paying before. Um, I want to ask you about Amazon because they're a big player in the movie industry now. Um, and at the same time, I was surprised to read in your reporting how much money they've spent on films that were or TV series that weren't successful. Uh, like we're talking like maybe a $250 million budget, which is what they spent for one season of the series Citadel, which um, hardly cracked the top 10. Um, so what, what's going on with how they're gambling on movies and those gambles aren't working out so well? Well, one of the, the, the byproducts of this, the, the initial exuberance and, and, and enthusiasm when it came to streaming was these companies or the, the cost of making shows skyrocketed because you had new players like Netflix and Amazon, that came in and had to convince famous writers and directors and actors to work with them. And the way of doing that was to pay them more than they were getting paid 
elsewhere. And you saw a lot of movie stars also then come into television because suddenly you could get paid a million and a half an episode, $2 million an episode, $3 million an episode. Directors, you know, on the, on the show Citadel you mentioned, Joe Russo, who along with his brother has worked on some big Marvel movies and they were producers on on, on many other movies and TV shows. He's going to get paid $25 million or around $25 million for his work on the second season of Citadel. That's that's a pretty great payday for you know six to eight episodes of work. Um, in the case of, of Amazon in particular, you know, I think that they have been caught uh, between a couple of impulses where early on in streaming, everyone seemed to want to validate what they were doing by making award-winning prestige TV like HBO. You know, Netflix famously said that they wanted to become HBO before HBO became Netflix, which I think they were f- fairly successful at doing. Um, Amazon similarly funded a lot of prestige programming. But when you think about the core Amazon customer, it's not someone who lives in Los Angeles and New York. Sure, there are plenty of people who use Amazon there, but Amazon is really a, a mass market commerce service. A lot of their customers um, you know, are, are not elite, not affluent. And so they had, they've, they've tried to offer a mix of the prestige programming with your sort of more meat and potatoes type fare. And they've had a lot more success with the latter, but they've spent a lot of money with these shows that are sort of caught in between, if you will, um, or that, that should not have cost nearly as much. You know, over the last six to 12 months, they've released maybe a half dozen shows that cost more than $100 million for a season, which is just a, a, a large amount of money. And maybe one or two of them could be considered successes in terms of, terms of viewership. Barry Diller, who founded Fox Broadcasting and USA Broadcasting, recently told Brooks Barnes, a reporter for The New York Times, um, and he was referring to Apple and Amazon, who now control a lot of the uh, viewing. He said, you now have in control tech companies who haven't a care or clue about the entertainment business. For each of these companies, their minor business, not their major business, is entertainment. And yet because of their size and influence, their minor interests are paramount in making any decision about the future. So do you, th- do you think that there's any truth to what he's saying that, you know, with the power of Apple and the power of Amazon in the media industry now, in television and movies, that they're controlling a lot of the industry, but they're not really, they don't really care that much about movies and television, that they're tech companies and they're not entertainment companies. You know, Barry Diller, I feel like, has been declaring the the death of Hollywood for for a long time now. So I do take what he says with a, a little grain of salt. But he's right that the 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 growth of Amazon and Apple, which I'd say are now two of the six major studios in town. You know, they've you know they've they've replaced some of the other ones that have been consolidated in in the deals that we've talked about. Um, Entertainment is not their primary business, and it speaks to maybe the the lesser value of traditional film and television in in broader culture, where it so so does the fact that that YouTube is now bigger than any TV network, that if you that TikTok is as popular uh, as as any streaming service, you know, film and TV doesn't have the same stranglehold on on culture and on youth that that it used to, um, and 
it's it, if I were running one of these traditional media entertainment companies, running Warner Brothers Discovery, running Disney, it would certainly scare me that two of our biggest competitors don't care about making money from film and TV in the same way because it means that the, the stakes are lower, the approach is going to be different, um, and entertainment is just a means of selling something else. And in Amazon's case, you know, diapers or books or whatever it is. In, in Apple's case, uh, phones and, and other devices. Let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Lucas Shaw, and he covers the media industry for Bloomberg. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series filled with hope and possibility about where people are today and what could come next. From tech to tradition, from climate to culture, from science to spirituality. Join futurist Ari Wallach on a journey around the world as he meets the brilliant minds and brave pioneers remaking people's futures for generations to come. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. What does it mean to be Black in America? And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview I recorded yesterday with Lucas Shaw, who covers the changing media industry for Bloomberg, and we're focusing on the movie and TV industry and how that whole industry has been in chaos. Let's talk about the actor strike and the writer strike and how what they're asking for is in part a result of all of the changes that we've been talking about. Let's start by talking about the, um, the money end and how they want to share in the profits of successful films and TV shows that they make? Streaming changed how any profit participant or any person involved in a show got paid, where when, when Netflix came around, a big part of their model was that they were going to pay people more upfront but buy out what's known in the entertainment industry as the back end and sort of a share in profits. Because when you have a, a movie that comes out, say Mission Impossible, which is out in theaters right now, Tom Cruise, who's the star of the movie, a producer in that movie, he gets a piece of the movie's revenue, profits, that sort of thing, which is incredibly lucrative on a movie that's a big hit. I think famously Robert Downey Jr. for one of the Iron Man movies you know, made tens of millions of dollars from, from his profit participation. The, the streaming model flipped that around and, and made it so that you, you got paid more up front, but you didn't have the same benefit and success. Now, in theory, this was supposed to benefit everyone more, right? Because they were treating sort of every show like a success. But it also meant that when you had a huge hit, maybe you didn't get as much, or because there was less transparency around viewership, 
that you didn't have the, 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 the data to understand what was happening with your project. And so there are all these things that, that Netflix introduced that people now look back on and sort of regret agreeing to, or at least that's a, a, center, a central point uh, that they're pushing for in these negotiations. What else can we understand about the strikes from the kind of chaos in the film and TV industry that we've been talking about and the reshaping of it? One of the reasons that I think you're seeing this this labor stoppage is that you have workers in this industry who feel that they're being taken advantage of. You know, there's been this incredible increase in, in output in film and television, and that means that there's been more strain on the workers than ever before because they're making three times as much television and a lot more movies, and they don't feel like they're getting paid as much money because the money's probably getting spread around to more different people. Um, and the people at the top are still doing incredibly well. But for the most part, the people in the middle and the bottom aren't doing quite as well. Uh, some of that's related to kind of how residuals work and people how people are paid for reruns that streaming has reshaped. At the same time, you have these media companies which are saying, we're losing money on these streaming services. You're asking for these huge increases in pay, and we can't give them to you because we are trying to make our businesses work. And so the the, the negotiations and these contracts came up at a very kind of dangerous time for these two sides, both of which feel aggrieved. I think both sides in the strike agree that the industry is in a perilous time. COVID shut everything down, and... Everybody on both sides of the strike were trying to recover from that and hoping that the industry would recover. So now with the strikes, everything's shut down again. It seems that that would be incentive for both sides to remain at the table and try to settle this so that the industry can start springing back again. Why isn't that a strong enough incentive to come to an agreement? Well, I, I, for the, in the case of the actors... I think they they spent some time trying to reach a deal with the studios, and it became apparent that they were too far apart. Um, and once you go on strike or once you make the decision to do so, you've got to spend at least a few weeks trying to to apply pressure to the other person um, and and see if that will make them come back to the table and, and change their minds. Um, you're right that that long labor stoppage, especially coming out of COVID, especially given all of the other problems in the industry that, that we've talked about, is is not good for anyone. You know, there's almost a, a guarantee that there'll be, say, a, a big hole in the movie release calendar next summer. That's not going to benefit anyone. All these streaming services, they're going to be low on programming next year, depending on, on how long the strike goes on. That's not going to benefit anyone. Obviously, all these writers... Uh, actors and, and directors, even though they made a deal because there's not a lot of production to do, these people are all out of work. They're not making money. But I think the uh, on the on the guild and on the union side, they feel like this is their moment and they have to draw a line on the sand. They've seen the you know the the impact of streaming over the last many years and feel that they have not reaped enough benefits from it. You know, the last time the writers went on strike, it was at the very beginning of the streaming business, 2007, 2008, just as Netflix and Hulu were coming out. And so, in effect, this one serves sort of a coda to that era of this boom in streaming where now everyone wants to figure out how they can get paid more effectively. For the media companies, um, I, I think part of the issue is that 
in the short term, they actually benefit a little bit from there being a strike because they are not spending a lot of money to produce shows. Now, that's short-term thinking. It doesn't benefit them in the long term, and that doesn't apply to every company. But if you're a Bob Iger or a David Zaslav and you're really worried about costs, you know, not having to make TV shows for a couple of months isn't the worst thing in the world. That doesn't mean I think they want a strike, but it means that the the downside to taking a couple of months off isn't as great as it might have been when they were trying to launch a service a couple of years ago. So do you think this will have long-term effects on how TV networks and cable program themselves? It could. You know, I, I was talking with uh, a, a senior executive at, at one of these companies recently, and, and maybe some of the experiments that they're trying in prime time on a network, it works and they they carry on. You know, if if uh, if a network has ninety minutes of Survivor and people watch it, do they keep a ninety minute version of that? You know, the the part that I would be scared about for some of these companies is the viewership for. Uh, a lot of these shows has already been in decline, right? And so if you have the late-night shows, you know, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, and they're, they've been off since the writer's strike started. They're off for months. How many of those viewers never come back? All right, you create other habits. Yeah, whether it's TikTok and YouTube or whether they start to watch something on Netflix instead. You know, you look at the... The, the Netflix's share of TV viewership in June hit an all-time high. Is that because people are spending a little bit less time watching linear TV? Certainly could be. Well, Lucas, I want to thank you so much for talking with us, and thanks for your coverage of media and the changing landscape. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Lucas Shaw is the managing editor for media and entertainment at Bloomberg and the author of the weekly newsletter Screen Time. After we take a short break... Book critic Maureen Corrigan will recommend two books for summer reading. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can, like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. The novelist Henry James famously said that the words summer afternoon were the two most beautiful words in the English language. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, says that the words summer reading would be a close second. Here's her review of two new novels that she thinks are great summer reading. It's time for some escape reading. Let's take off for the coast, both coasts, in fact, and get some temporary relief from the heat and everything else that's swirling around in the air. Lindsay Lynch's luscious debut novel, Do Tell, is set not in the roiling Hollywood of today, but in the golden age of the 30s and 40s, when studio moguls could keep an iron lid on all manner of unrest and scandal. 
Lynch's main character, Edie O'Dare, is in the business of ferreting out what the studios would rather keep hidden. A flame-haired character actress, Edie has been boosting her paycheck by working as a source for one of Hollywood's leading gossip columnists, Poppy St. John, a.k.a. the Tinseltown Tattler. But as Edie creeps close to 30 and her contract with the mighty FWM movie studio is about to expire, fate throws her a lifeline. A young starlet confides in Edie that she was assaulted by a leading man at one of those Day of the Locust-type Hollywood parties. Edie wants justice for the starlet, but she also wants security for herself. Ultimately, she leverages the scandalous story to land a gossip column of her own. For the rest of her career, Edie has to walk a line. If she dishes too much dirt on the stars, the studio gates will slam shut in her face. Lynch also deftly walks a line here between telling a blunt Me Too story and serving up plenty of Turner Classics movie glamour. Edie herself is a more morally conflicted version of Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons, the real-life gossip queens who were widely known as the two most feared women in Hollywood. In her best lines, Edie also channels the wit of a Dorothy Parker. Recalling one of the vapid roles she played as an actress, Edie says, The costume I wore had more character development than I did. Do Tell could have used some trimming of its Cecil B. DeMille-sized cast, but its unsettling central story dramatizes just how far the tentacles of the old studio system intruded into every aspect of actors' lives. Dwyer Murphy's novel, The Stolen Coast, would make a perfect noir, especially if Golden Age idols Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer could be resurrected to play the leads. There's a real out-of-the-past vibe to this moody tale of a femme fatale who returns to trouble the life of the guy she left behind and perhaps set him up for a final fall. The Stolen Coast takes place in the present, in Onset, Massachusetts, a down-at-its-heels village with a harbor shaped like a teardrop and two-room cottages you could rent by the month, week, or night. Our main character and narrator is Jack Betancourt, a Harvard-educated lawyer nicknamed the Ferryman because he makes his money ferrying people on the run into new lives. While his clients' false IDs and backstories are being hammered out, Jack stows them away in those vacation cottages around town. Jack's dad, a former spy, is his business partner. One evening, to Jack's surprise, Elena turns up at the local tiki lounge. Elena's backstory makes Crooked Jack seem like Dudley Do-Right. Some seven years earlier, Elena left town and forged her way into law school. Now she's engaged and about to make partner, but no matter. Elena has her eyes on some diamonds that her boss has stashed in the safe of his vacation home nearby. Naturally, Elena needs Jack's help for the heist. 
Murphy has the lonely saxophone notes of noir down cold in his writing. Here, for instance, is a passage where Jack reflects on how the villagers feed off his bored stowaways. A great deal of the local economy was formed around time, how to use it up, how to save it, how to conceive of its passage. For every new arrival we ran, it often seemed there were three or four or five civilians sniffing around to learn what they could offer in the way of distraction or diversion. Drugs, cards, food, sex, companionship, fishing equipment. It's surprising to me that Jack, who clearly has a poetic sensibility, doesn't mention books in that list. For many of us readers, books, like the two I've just talked about here, are the most reliable diversion of them all. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Do Tell by Lindsay Lynch and The Stolen Coast by Dwyer Murphy. If you'd like to catch up on fresh air interviews you missed, like this week's interviews about how fungi have led and are leading to the near extinction of some plants and animals, or our interview with actor Timothy Oliphant, check out our podcast. You'll find lots of fresh air interviews. And to read about what's happening behind the scenes of our show, subscribe to our free newsletter at whyy.org slash freshair. Fresh executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Charles Schwab, with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, historians, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.